Welcome to the Public Health Power Hour podcast, a recording of live conversations with public health experts on the most important global health issues. I'm Steve Hamill, Vice President of Policy Advocacy and Communication at Vital Strategies. We're a global health organization and we're reimagining public health. At Vital Strategies, we believe that public health is everything that surrounds you that makes great health possible. That means clean air and water, access to medicine and quality care, healthy food and places to get exercise, and removing bias and discrimination in healthcare. Here on the Public Health Power Hour, we get together to look at how the world around us shapes our health and how we can shape the environment so that everyone everywhere has the potential for great health. And if you want to join our conversations live, please follow us on Twitter under the handle VitalStrat. I'm happy to start um, our Public Health Power Hour on Gaslit by Industry Ads and how creatives are fighting back. And for those of you who are new, welcome to the Public Health Power Hour. This is a weekly clubhouse meet to meet up to discuss the relationship between personal health and public health. And to us, that means everything that surrounds you that makes great health possible. It means clean air and water. It means access to medicines and healthy food and access to exercise. It means supportive culture and also removing barriers to health like bias. And COVID-19 means that this has never been a more important conversation. We have so much more to do to protect people's health. And we've learned that all too well over the past year. My name's Steve Hamill. I started my career going door to door um, for environmental and students' rights. And after about 10,000 conversations on people's porches and in their living rooms, learning about what motivates them, I, I moved into advocacy, advertising, and digital communications work for social good. Now I'm at uh, Vital Strategies. I'm the vice president for communication. Um, and I love working here because we have one foot in public health science, but the other foot is really entrenched in the experiences and perspectives of uh, of the populations we we seek to serve and of our partners and countries. And those you know kinds of conversations um, that that bring out those perspectives are still such a key part of our work. And this clubhouse uh, community is part of that. We want to build a community of people who look to reimagine public health so it's at the center of commerce, social and civic life. And we're here to learn about different areas of public health to share different perspectives. We have a different focus topic each week. Um, but we also want to stay looking at the big picture, and we've had fantastic discussions um, on NCDs and COVID last week, on cycling and active transport the week before. We've got an upcoming discussion on crowdsourcing for industry monitoring, public health, and another upcoming show on, on how researchers interested in health equity can improve the implementation and design of research. Um, if you have a topic you'd like us to cover, drop us an email at powerhour at vitalstrategies.org. I'm really excited about this week's topic on industry advertising, tobacco and fossil fuel industry advertising, and the creative movement to push back against ads that cover for the harms they're doing to health and environment. I just want to note that we see these weekly chats as a, a way of engaging an open dialogue and all the speakers are participating in their personal capacity and their statements and views represents their personal point of view. We will be recording this show because we, um, 
are re-promoting the, the recordings of this. And if you speak, please note, we may use your comments in a future recording as we remarket this. Um, we like to warm up the room with a bit of audience help. Uh, we're trying this interactive statement called Health News of the Week. We have about five minutes to share different news stories that caught your attention, that caught our speaker's attention. And that means just 30 or 45 seconds to, to each to describe what news um, the, that you noticed this week, please raise your hand now if you saw a news story you'd like to bring to this stage. And if you want to share it or talk about it, rant or rave about it for a few seconds, I'm going to stay off mute and help people recognize when that 30 seconds up. Um, I have a news article to share, but first, maybe I'll turn it to Duncan. Would you like to share a piece of news from the week? Yeah, um, my news is that the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is this massive consortium of climate scientists, um, are meeting this week and next week for the most important um, report they've issued since 2013. And this is sort of the acknowledged global benchmark for where we are vis-a-vis climate change, the likely impacts we're going to experience, um, things like that. And it's really a very important moment um, to think about the progress or not progress um, the governments have made on climate action. And it's it's just like a really important benchmark for thinking about the public health impacts of climate change as it relates to disease, pollution, um, heat waves, things like that. So that'll be um, be made public, the final report in a couple of weeks. Thank you for sharing that. It's great to hear. Um, Nandita, do you have a, a, an article you would like to share? Sure. I saw a news article this week about a study that looked at trust and leadership, and it caught my attention because if there's anything we've learned through the pandemic, it's just how important political leadership is. And this study essentially looked at how the decisions leaders make in through moral dilemmas, something they have to do often, impacts public trust. So a moral dilemma is when they have to choose how to distribute scarce resources when there isn't enough to go around. And we've lived through that, ventilators, masks, a whole lot of other things through the pandemic. Essentially, what the study found is leaders who seek to save the most lives around the globe receive the most favor from their citizens. And this is irrespective of whether or not people support those leaders, comes from a range of countries, from Australia, Brazil, South Africa, South Korea, all over the world, really. And I thought it was really hopeful, and I hope leaders are attending to it. I love that. I mean, we talk so much on this show about how public health is more so much more than technical packages. It's it's societies taking action and political leadership. And I love that you're pointing out that, you know, those who fight for health are getting the political benefit as well. It's a win-win for politicians to stand up for policies that benefit health. Uh, Karen, you raised your hand and came up to stage. What article would you like to show? Well, this is an article I just saw in The Guardian, and the headline is, Three Americans Create Enough Carbon Emissions to Kill One Person. Um, says that the lifestyles around three average Americans will create enough planet heating emissions to kill one person. This is a new study uh, that was just published in Nature Communications. And it's looking on, looking at what's called the social cost of carbon. And I know we've looked at that, this a little bit in the past, but it's, um, well, it's sobering to say the least. And it makes me think that you know, using fossil fuels is so deeply embedded in our economy and our society that it's going to take enormous changes for us to turn that around and um, 
I just hope we have time. Anyway, you should check it out. It's a little scary. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. I, I love that too, that you identified or this article, this research that, 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 that shows that collectively we have this onus to take action, but individually we each have a part like a burden that 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 we have as well. The article I'd like to bring, or the news that I'd like to uh, to bring to attention is Simone Biles' uh, attention grabbing withdrawal from the Olympic stage, and I think it's such an incredible moment for people to see that even the most elite performers have the power to put health at the forefront of their decision making. Uh, you know. This is incredible athlete, incredible champion who's, you know, at, at, there's almost never been a moment when the limelight has been more on her. And yet she's made the decision to put her own personal health ahead of the potential benefits of, you know, the glory of getting gold or the pressure. Um, and I think that kind of culture shifting from the people that we admire that that shows that health is the most important or should be among the most important things that we think about in our personal decision, but also in social decision-making um, is, is really admirable and is going to make a difference, particularly for millions or tens of millions of young women who are looking up to her. I think this is uh, like a, a, an admirable moment for, for public health that, that we have a champion in Simone Biles. All right, so we'll move on um, to our our main topic, um, and I wanted to start with why I put the term uh, we put the term gaslighting in the title. And the definition that I found on the web that I thought was really succinct is: gaslighting is a form of psychological abuse where a person or group makes someone question their sanity, perception of reality, or memories. And you know, in our world, the public health world, environmental, the, the parallel is that, you know, companies who are responsible for millions of deaths a year say that they care about health, or the biggest polluters in the world say they care about the environment. And we know that tobacco and fossil fuel companies are using marketing and advertising by the billions. Um, and unfortunately, when super powered like this, gaslighting seems to work, especially when it's powered by some of the best and brightest kind of creative minds. So we'll use the next 40, 50 minutes to talk about how the industries are using this advertising, why and how creatives are pushing back against uh, the industry and trying to use their powers for good. And I'm happy to introduce Duncan Maisel. Um, You've already heard his voice. He's the director of the Clean Creatives Campaign, which we'll hear about. He's a digital strategist with history in working in the environmental movements on the progressive group moveon.org and more. Duncan, we're amidst this existential crisis around the climate. It's topping the news every day. We have heat waves. We have floods. Today in New York City, where I'm at, we have an air quality warning from fires burning thousands of miles out in the West. But, you know, what does advertising by the fossil fuel industry have to do with any of us? Can you shed some light on your perspective? Yeah. So thank you so much um, for the chance to talk. Um, I really do think that centering public health in this conversation about climate change is vital because it is the most immediate impact. It's the thing that is affecting our lives now. Um, heat waves, smoke inhalation, um, disease trans uh, transfer, it really is central. Um, so I, I think this is the right place to have this discussion. So 
Um, Clean Creatives was started um, as a way to connect with communication professionals about their work um, with fossil fuel companies. And the role of fossil fuel advertising is really, I would say, lobbying in public. It's affecting the public's perception of what this industry does, how committed they are to um, climate action, and then influencing the kinds of actions that governments are willing or able to take um, to affect the change. And um, so this you know, comes down to uh, directly misleading the public about certain products they serve, uh, that they sell, such as Exxon, which has widely advertised their uh, you know, production of algae-based biofuels as a sustainable fuel, but has never sold an algae-based biofuel to a single consumer anywhere. Um, to, uh, to companies like Shell, which has spent millions of dollars advertising their, quote, net zero ambition, but then admitted to their shareholders that Shell's, and I quote this directly, um, budgets and uh, current policies and budget priorities do not reflect their net zero emissions target. So we're really dealing with a company, with an industry that has committed to misleading the public. And um, the reason that they're doing that is because um, they want to stop governments, corporations, um, and individuals from holding them accountable to the climate action we need. Um, you know, the one statistic that I like to focus on here is that, um, you know, every year uh, major oil companies decide what they're going to spend their money on. You know, what are we investing in? What are we researching? Um, what are we building? And less than 1% of those expenditures, less than 1% are going towards renewable energy and carbon capture and storage. Over 99% is going towards more fossil fuel extraction, extraction, transformation, consumption, which really shows their priorities. And the role of their advertising is to make it easier for them to continue selling those products that they are investing all of their money in. And so um, that's the reason that we started this campaign is because this lobbying in public is one of the biggest obstacles to climate action. Um, and it's the biggest obstacle because this industry, the energy industry, makes up three quarters of the emissions that we need to eliminate. So we really see this as kind of the, the building block of uh, meaningful climate action on the part of creative industries, communication industries, um, is really stopping working with the worst actors. Um, does that is that answer your question, Steve? Yeah, it does. And um, you know, I'd like to take the moment to draw the parallel with tobacco control. You know, tobacco is the world's leading preventable killer. It's on track to kill a billion people this century, and it's currently tobacco-related illness kills more than seven million people a year, and even more are, you know, secondarily harmed through illness, um, you know, morbidity and mortality both. And, you know, since the 1950s, really, the tobacco industry relied on aggressive advertising, right? The original Mad Men were built around this kind of, um, at, you know, aggressive advertising. And they need it because cigarettes kill half of people who use them as directed. So they need advertising to replenish their customer base. Um, and, and, and it's a massive part of their business infrastructure and they, they require advertising to, to uh, acquire new customers. In 2017 alone, tobacco companies spent $9.5 billion marketing cigarettes and smokeless tobacco just in the US. That's $25 million every day um, or a million dollars every hour on, on advertising and marketing. And 
um, you know, despite kind of efforts to regulate them, we know big tobacco still targets youth, low-income communities and communities of color, and yet they use advertising and marketing to say that they're supportive of these communities, that they're, you know, support LGBT rights all the, all the while that they target them. And similarly, they're using advertising to convince public and policymakers that they're interested in health. Um, you know, the most brazen example recently is Philip Morris International's Unsmoke the World campaign, where they claim that they want people to stop smoking. And, you know, this is a company that's the one of the world's leading seller of cigarettes in across dozens of countries. And if they cared about stop people quitting smoking, they could quit smoking, selling cigarettes. And it's, it's kind of obvious, uh, you know, that, that their Unsmoke campaign is, is gaslighting, right? If they could help or stop selling their killer product, um, but instead they're putting millions of dollars behind a campaign that makes you doubt the obvious and changes the debate from should we regulate tobacco, how should we regulate tobacco to promoting vaping, their new product. Um, you know, and another reason that they do this, they've identified in documents that got leaked that they need top talent, top creative talent to to sell their products. And people don't want to work with a company whose mission is to sell a product that kills people. So they desperately need to refurbish their image so that they can recruit the kind of creatives that they need to, 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 to run their campaigns. Um, Nandita, I'd like to bring you into this a bit. Um, Dr. Nandita Murkutlo is a social psychologist and a behavioral scientist by training. Um, she brings that deep expertise and experiences in market research to her work as vice president of global policy and research at Vital Strategies. So you're social psychologist by training, and all the time we hear from people, consumers, that advertising doesn't work. You know, they're making their own choices and their own decisions. Can you share a little bit about the the science? behind how advertising works. I mean, it seems, you know, like people aren't going to believe the, you know, beautiful beach and seagull ad from some big oil company that they're doing great work on the climate. So why do they dump millions into ads like this and, and how does it work? Sure. Thanks, Steve. Um, and, and, you know, it's interesting you mentioned that people think they're invulnerable to advertising when in fact there's data to show that most consumers believe that advertising influences others, but not themselves. And ironically, it is those consumers who believe that they're immune to the effects of advertising that are more likely to be influenced by it. It's probably because they dropped their guard. The fact that advertising would work um, is, is somewhat obvious. It's essentially advertising is persuasive communication and persuasive communication works. And what advertising uses is classic principles of persuasion to make messages stick and to get people to act in certain ways. And, and before I talk about some of the principles from social psychology that explain the influence of advertising, I think it's important to remember, especially in the context of unhealthy commodities or harmful commodities, that the goal of the advertising is not just to increase the sales of the product, while of course that is the, the penultimate goal, it's also to promote the cause of that product, if you will. So in the case of tobacco, while the ultimate goal is to increase the sale of tobacco itself, the goal of the advertising is also to create that fertile environment in which the industry can thrive. And this is particularly important for industries that 
sell harmful commodities like tobacco, where the public is increasingly aware of the scientific harms uh, or the, the evidence around the harms of these products and that they're coming to get regulated. So what are some of the principles underlying the effectiveness of advertising and really the sort of classic persuasion principles? Well, advertising exploits first the way people think. So advertising has an effect on memory, it, and it's, it's often subtle, it's often subliminal. The more people see certain ads or certain brands, they tend to build familiarity towards it, and they can mistake that familiarity or recognition as preference. And herein is a, another sort of behavioral scientific um, data point that's important. Most people make decisions rapidly. The estimates are about within eight seconds to 10 seconds. And so when people are making rapid decisions, they're in what is called a low information processing mode. And they're relying on peripheral cues in the product to make that choice. So one might be familiarity. They remember it better than the other products on a shelf or other product options. So that's what they may pick. And this is also where product labels come in. Make By making product labels, and the labels are in fact another communication form, making them attractive is a way by which the, the um, industry is essentially targeting consumers at that point of decision-making to pick their product. Advertising also capitalizes on the way people feel. So advertising appeals to emotions, builds affinity, builds engagement, and essentially captures those universal pleasurable emotions and pairs it with that product or cause so that ultimately that product, its behaviors, feels like part of the social fabric in which people live. And here, herein are examples from Coke, um, another unhealthy product. And of course, tobacco glamorized as it is by um, characters in films or other sort of, you know, celebrity um, role models. Um, and, and so ultimately, this is how through the way people think and the way people feel, including creating a sense that everyone's doing it. And so get in on what what is popular. These are the ways in which advertising harnesses um, the latent aspirations of people and, and cements that product, its, its practice and its culture into people's lives. I love hearing the science behind that. I think that's so important to recognize that. Well, I think what you said that basically the repeated exposure, the number of impressions is something that people end up substituting for actual validation of, you know, to create trust. So they're putting these ads out on the airwaves. They're putting out stories that get their name brand out. And they establish, because they're a known quantity, they establish trust even when it's not deserved. Um, that's really powerful. I, I, I wanted to talk, touch a little bit, a bit about what some work that we've done, um, Vital Strategies has done within this area, similar to the Clean Creatives campaign, um, and dig into that a bit. But about three years ago, we called, created an initiative called Quit Big Tobacco that's similar to the Clean Creatives campaign, worked to rally advertising agencies and big brands to pledge not to participate in efforts to promote tobacco use. Um, and we really wanted to change that narrative. You know, the tobacco industry doesn't have the creative talent they need to make this deadly product appeal to consumers. So they turned to ad agencies and some of the world's other leading firms to create these campaigns. And we know that big tobacco needs creative talent, but we wanted to challenge creative folks to say, do 
they need big tobacco. And we found willing partners in this effort. More than 300 brands, agencies, and people signed the pledge not to work with those who are promoting tobacco and not to work with tobacco industries directly. And they included some really prominent people, uh, Alex Boguski, who's a superstar creative, um, some big agencies and brands, CVS Health, who's a Fortune 5 company, pledged not to work with any agency that uh, works with tobacco. That was a big win. So we found really fertile grounds within the creative and advertising world to change the conversation about how, you know, do they have an obligation uh, to think about how their work creates the world and can they play a role in shaping a healthier world? And we found some, you know, really welcome champions, but also some people who refused to engage. Duncan, I was wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about you know, the coalition that Clean Creatives has built. Um, what have the, you know, mar milestones been for you and for your campaign? And what kinds of conversations have you had with the people in the creative industry? Yeah, the word really um, interesting moment, um, interesting being a very mild way to look at it with climate action, where we've had now decades of pledges and the Paris Climate Agreement in 2015 being the most significant. And now we are having to get down to brass tacks. We are past the point of setting ambition and we are to the point of having to make hard decisions. And so a lot of the conversations we're having with people are about those hard decisions, about bringing their values into alignment with their actions. And so it's hard anytime you point out that someone that, you know, your company has said that you want to have a net zero impact on the world, but you're working for X, Y, or Z um, company, you know, having your values out of line with your actions is a tough conversation. And so I, I, you know, our goal is always to keep that conversation going because we think that the most important thing is that um, this be front of mind um, with, com with companies as they decide what clients to work with um, or to the clients, what companies they work with, these the same, same, uh, framework. So it is tough, um, and but we are at the point of needing to make decisions. Um, there's too much smoke in the air. There's too many cities being flooded. And um, there isn't really any more opportunity to kick this can down the road. Um, so yeah, we, we're just trying to keep it front of mind. And we do have, um, you know, now almost 270 um, individuals that have signed our pledge. And then um, over a hundred individual agencies as well. Uh, so we're making pretty good progress, I think, but when it really gets down to, um, you know, the larger agencies that have, have had these clients for years and count on them um, to be kind of part of their annual planning, um, it is going to be uh, a tougher conversation and it is, it is going to be harder. But, you know, considering the upcoming um, next sort of round of climate talks in uh, November, um, and just generally, you know, the state of the world, I think it's going to be unavoidable. Um, you know, one example just to, to sort of like explain how tough this can be um, and, and why this is so vital. You know, the world's largest ad conglomerate is WPP. Um, they made a commitment to go to, ad, or to net zero for their operations, all of their operations by 2030, which is, you know, if they made widgets would be a fantastic pledge, um, but they don't. They make ideas, they make advertisements. And you know they calculated that their pledge would remove 4.2 megatons of carbon from the atmosphere. Well, one of their clients, BP, discloses how much carbon they produce in the atmosphere. And when we do the math, um, if WPP does their job for BP at all, 
you know, which is to say if they increase their sales by even 0.3%, um, if they make BP any money, they've wiped out the impact of WPP's climate pledge. And that's just one of their clients. So we're really looking at this moment of like hard choices. And um, I think they're going to be unavoidable choices. And I think there's going to need to be this conversation and, and there will be laggards. There will be people who wait and then there will be people who lead. Um, and I, I think the people who lead will really um, benefit from that. So that's, that's a little bit of a picture of where we're at. And, um, you know, I, I really do agree with the parallels with the conversation about tobacco because these are two public health crises, you know, um, and they really are crises that are defined by the scope of government action that's be, be able to be taken and then the impact of uh, impact of advertisement, communication, public relations on the government's willingness and ability to take those actions. Like this is really the centerpiece of how we address these public health crises and what's allowed them to flourish. Thanks for that. And um, I, I have a follow-up question, but um, if you have a comment or question you'd like to bring from the floor, please raise your hand and I'd be happy to bring you up. Um, Duncan, it was our experience talking with uh, individuals from you know companies large and small that almost to a conversation, we heard individuals say, I'd love not to work with you know tobacco industry. I'd love not to work uh, you know, with to, on harmful products, um, or sometimes they'd say things like, "Well, we're only doing this, you know, small piece. We're actually not doing the cigarette. We're just doing their vaping brand, and that's not bad." Um, but it almost always came down to creative folks saying, "Like, well, this is a business decision. You're going to have to talk to the CEO or CFO." Um, but and and at the end of the day, the creative folks, the people who are actually creating the ideas, creating the ads, almost never want to to work on these kinds of harmful campaigns. They want to do work that's interesting and creative and engaging and betters the world. And they didn't want, they don't want to spend their time and talent on these kinds of campaigns. Did you have similar conversation? Absolutely. And there are two really strong indicators here of how bad <laughs> this is to work on. You know, one is that essentially none of the companies that have these major fossil fuel clients advertise them. They don't show up on their websites. No one's proud of this work. Um, and the other thing is that you don't win awards doing this work. You don't win awards for tobacco clients. You don't win awards for fossil fuel clients. And that's a really vital part of career advancement, of being, uh, having the opportunity to take on more leadership, of uh, getting a raise. You don't get those awards if you work on these clients. It is kind of um, the dumps. So yeah, people really don't want to do this for self-interested reasons, for um personal reasons outside of that. Uh, and it's, it is a, a strong contrast. And I think what we're trying to do is make a, I don't mean this in a sarcastic way, but a safe space for people who have that feeling to take action together and just recognize that there are hundreds and hundreds of your peers who feel the same way. And that when you add your voice together, that's the chance to change the industry. And I, I am very optimistic about that being a powerful force. And Ultimately, you know, creative agencies, the people at the top, they need that talent. They need that talent more than they need the immediate income from the clients because the talent is the pipeline. Talent is the future of your company. So I, I really hope that we come to a moment where people who have that creative, who have those skills um, can lead this conversation because I, I think they have an enormous untapped potential to change the way their industry works. Nandita, I, 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 that's interesting, you know, 
I know you're a, a policy and social psychologist who's digging into the tendrils of industry. And I thought it was interesting that, you know, we, you know, as a communications person, advocacy person, I think a lot about policies and about public opinion. But I know that you showed in a recent um, study that tobacco and fuel industries get tens of billions of dollars in taxpayer subsidies. So this is something that's really invisible to public opinion. And that's on the line, too, when we talk about um, what, how their reputations unfold in the halls of power. Can you share a little bit more about this, you know, how socially our, our society, our culture is actually subsidizing the harms of these companies? And, you know, and on some level, the advertising that these companies are pushing out are meant to protect those investments and create political cover for these subsidies. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. That that was a particularly alarming study um, and analysis. We looked at fossil fuels and we looked at alcohol and we examined the kinds of incentives that these companies get from governments. I should say at the outset that we're only looking at investments from governments. So it doesn't capture all the other investments that might be present. And it because this data is so hard to get, it's rarely published. I would expect that what we found is a severe underreporting of the true scale of subsidies and investments received by these industries. And what's particularly alarming about this is that these industries receive incentives to promote their products, promote the, that industry in the guise of development, particularly when the countries themselves are struggling to meet health budgets for much more urgent needs. One of the things we found in the context of this conversation is that alcohol advertising, for instance, is um, tax deductible. So as a result of the way company taxation works, companies can actually claim deductions on their marketing budgets. So the billions of dollars that's spent to promote a health-harmful commodity like alcohol often exported to countries with weak regulation and where the alcohol burden is severely decimating those health systems as well as costing productivity, the marketing budget alone is tax exempt. And if you look at our report, you'll find that millions of dollars is, is essentially given away to industries that make billions of dollars selling in low and middle income countries. So it, it's pretty astounding. And what this really underscores is a need to really examine how we finance our, um, our health, how we, uh, how we consider development. Is it in fact development when we're promoting products that will ultimately harm us? And how we spend public money, including bilateral aid that's intended for social welfare. And this we would not count as social welfare at all. That's incredible. I mean, we've over just, you know, the past 25 minutes, we've heard about how, um, you know, these unhealthy industries, tobacco and fossil fuels um, depend on advertising, you know, a little bit about their profound impact on our health, how much they rely on advertising as a key tool for advancing their interest in that you know, the science is that the exposure to this advertising is as important or maybe more important than actual reality, than truth. Um, and they rely on this to recruit the talent that they need, um, to continue advertising, to keep policies from being enacted, and to protect billions of dollars in subsidies, you know, beyond even their business. Um, we have a colleague who's come up with a, 
question. Would you like a, do you have a question or a comment to add? Thanks, Steve. Yes, I had a question for Nandita and Duncan. I think we briefly talked, um, or we have talked about kind of like tobacco marketing and the tobacco industry, but I've been seeing a lot of news articles recently about how um, the CEO of Philip Morris International announcing that they want the UK to ban smoking in 10 years. And I just wanted to get Nandita Duncan, everyone who's really on the line, their thoughts on this, um, because at the same time that they're making this announcement, they're also investing in like asthma inhaler um, companies. They're trying to elevate their um, smoke-free products. So just wanted to get um, Nandita and Duncan's thoughts. You know, I think I, I, I before Nandita answers, I'll ask her to, I, I invite her to build on, you know, because I, I just want to jump in on this. And I'd say, you know, relates directly to the title of this um, of this talk. And Philip Morris International is gaslighting the world. This week, as you said, they announced to the public they want to get out of the smoking business in the UK. But just last week on their investor call, they said that they're looking forward to the recovery of their combustible smoking business. They've made a decision to lead the UK smoking business because their market position is weak. They only have 7.5% of the market there. And tobacco control policies in the UK are driving down smoking rates. So they see that there's no future for their combustible market. And, you know, it's expensive for them to operate in the UK in this losing market. And they just want to push their Icos product, which is their to heat, not burn product. So they put lipstick on a pig. And, you know, they've rolled out this PR effort to push this story that they care about health, when in fact, this is more about pushing cigarettes elsewhere. And they continue to oppose policies that are proven to pop improve population health. Um, you know, of course, they haven't made this announcement in other countries where they're market leaders. So to me, it's just a great example of how they've put lipstick on the pig of this business decision of theirs and a lot of breathless media coverage about this announcement is serving their larger interests um, of, of kind of creating a more positive public image. But Nandita, I saw you come off mute. I'm, I'm happy to have you build on that. Yeah, I mean, I, I just said that I think it's the most blatant example of what we see typically as, and as, um, you know, refurbishing images. I think Duncan's example of WPP is another such example of this. And really, uh, I believe a lot of this is reflective of the tighter regulations around the tobacco industry and therefore all of the different ways in which the industry continually seeks to um, market itself and push its margins where really they're expecting expecting to see growth. And it really calls upon us, therefore, to make sure the, the public is well-educated and um, understands how to read between the lines. And that as a global health community, we continually monitor for this. Um, Steve, you've mentioned that in a forthcoming um, a forthcoming interaction, uh, our colleagues will be talking about a crowdsourcing platform by which Vital Strategies is monitoring ways in which the tobacco industry continually monitor markets itself. And I think those kinds of systems to both monitor and then to respond are crucial. I, and, and just to say, I mean, there's there's so much history for this approach across industries. Um, you know, the 
they've always just tried to position themselves, both fossil fuels and tobacco, as just being innocent suppliers. We provide something that people want, and we can't stop selling it because they want it. We need you to take the action um, is sort of the attitude here. And recently, um, ExxonMobil's top lobbyist was caught um, in a video sting, which is hilarious and revealing. And I absolutely recommend watching all the coverage about this, where he talked about why ExxonMobil all of a sudden supports a carbon tax. And he admits it's because it will never happen. And what it does is it positions them as socially responsible. They say they're calling for an action that, you know, is against nominally against their bottom line, but they know it won't happen. And what they do is it shifts responsibility. It says it's the responsibility of government to address um, the harmful impacts of our product, not us. Um, and then they're advocating for something that, you know, even if it did happen, um, you know, they would have an opportunity to weaken, to limit its impact. Um, and then ultimately, you know, it just makes the case about why people need their products. So this strategy of sort of picking one big, hairy sort of public policy goal that seems, oh, wow, this is surprising. This is a, a tried and true strategy. And it, it's something that Exxon and, and fossil fuels are definitely doing um, in parallel. And I agree, it's, it's exactly the, it, it's a branding effort and it's um, a harmful one at that. I want to build on something that you just talked about, which is the, this underlying frame of individual choice, you know, and, and in the tobacco uh, space, we see that all the time, tobacco companies saying, well, smokers are choosing, we're just, you know, they're, we're allowing, you know, we're empowering, we're selling something that they want. Um, and, and all the meanwhile, they're doing everything they can to lobby against a climate where quitting is really empowered. They're lobbying against, they, they literally crafted a product to be as addictive as possible. They're lobbying against, um, you know, the kinds of policies that even protect people who are not smokers um, from being exposed to secondhand smoke or exposed to advertising. Um, Nandita, I'm just curious to touch, because uh, I know this is a, has a lot to do with your research about how people perceive individual choice versus kind of policies and environments and collective action. Do you want to share something about that? Sure, happy to. Um, it is indeed a part of the, the myth and the narrative that shapes the promotion of these products and the industries. And it is in some respects uh, a lack of accountability for protecting the public and the most vulnerable within it. Um, we know from a lot of research, including some that I talked about before, that in fact, people are not as cognizant. Um, there are peripheral, wa peripheral ways in which decisions are made and simple information availability or even the literal availability of resources. And herein, it's not just the availability of the resource, but true access to it. All of it ultimately influences whether or not people can make a healthy choice. And therefore, for if people live in food deserts where there is no healthy food, then they are pushed towards making a choice towards an unhealthy diet and putting that responsibility on that individual is unfair. If an individual is seeking to quit smoking but is thrown into environments where they're constantly uh, bombarded with secondhand smoke, then their resolve is likely to be um, weakened. And so recognition that the environment plays a crucial role in ultimately healthy behavior adoption is, is key. And providing people with the levers in their environment, whether it's through 
pack warnings as tobacco control has very successfully done campaigns mass media campaigns that help people understand the risks that they are exposed to and the more macro level policies price adjustments marketing restrictions other such policies that protect the environment are ultimately crucial so that individuals can make healthy choices because they're enabled to do so yeah that really rings true for me i mean even just in my personal experience uh you know i was a pack a day smoker for years and the way i started age 17 you know at college for the first time going out to smoky bars and there were literally cigarette girls who came around and gave away free cigarettes um and then within those cigarettes were you know promotional items you could collect camel bucks to buy stuff you needed at college um and so technically yes there was you know i made a choice to start smoking but but also the environment was one that really promoted smoking as a glamorous thing to do something cool you did when you went to college and you became an adult um and incentivized and rewarded people who smoked so the the policy that the, the environment around us is is incredibly influential around our individual behaviors and when you scale that up to millions or billions of people um that's where you see the population health impact i have a like a very open question which is you know has the role of social media made this kind of era of gaslighting more prominent you know are people only listening to their own information bubbles and that makes people more susceptible to this kind of you know industry csr marketing i mean i was just reflecting on you know the vaccination the difficulty of persuading people to vaccinate um here in this country in the us and thinking about you know how difficult it's become to get people to listen to sources of information outside of the ones that they uh, ascribe to already um and looking at i know the tobacco industry seems to be taking advantage of this kind of environment to become more and more aggressive in positioning themselves as you know a company with a conscience companies with conscience companies that care about health um i'm just curious about either of your thoughts about how the information landscape is contributing to this um you know era of gaslighting I think there's a a really specific impact that this has um as it affects public policy. So just to provide an example, um a few months ago Exxon was uh having a shareholder vote about whether to put some new people on its board that were going to push the company towards um taking action on climate change. Not really ambitious um but you know some action. and they spent millions of dollars on micro-targeted ads on platforms like Facebook or uh, like LinkedIn and Twitter where you have higher income people who are more likely to be their shareholders are and they used that to try and affect the outcome of that vote they did lose dramatically um and those new people are on their board but it was a really targeted effort and as soon as that vote happened all of their spending ramped back down so there is a role the social media the 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 targeting elements that it offers um allows these companies the opportunity to more um carefully and specifically influence political outcomes or corporate outcomes that could affect their bottom line so i i think the platform social media platforms um do have an obligation to address this kind of advertising and and we've called on them to do so um just you know every 
every major platform um, does have policies against paid advertisement for tobacco products. And, and we think that fossil fuel companies should be uh, held to the same standard. There's another aspect to social media I've been wondering about. Um, I, I too have been wondering, as you said, Steve, um, about the influence of social media on, on information as well as people's perceptions. In addition to this um, idea of people living in a bubble of information, I came across a study recently that looked at political affiliation and information sources. And it, it basically found that those that were liberal tended to get their or trust information from sort of bigger news houses um, versus those that were conservative tended to rely on um, personality-led news sources. So I would imagine this is sort of the TV talk show host or even um, those you know, influencers on, um, on social media. I don't know enough about the data beyond this particular study, and it is one that I think is worth exploring because there's an intimacy in a social media format that may feel more persuasive than the somewhat um, objective seeming news from other sources. And I, I think it's worth unpacking how different demographics and different political affiliations respond to information differently. Because ultimately we know that trust in information is what drives so much. Um, and I imagine that the industry is attuned to this and using it. And I think it's, we need to do the same. Yeah. And I want to uh, build on something you said earlier, which is beyond the kind of changes in how consumers are getting information. We also have the fact that, you know, social media targeting means that for those of us who are trying to monitor the industry and see what they're up to, it can become really impossible to identify where the advertising is happening. It's not just happening in the pages, editorial pages of the New York Times or, you know, in billboards and magazines anymore like it was 20 years ago. And you could pick, go to a newsstand or, um, and kind of get a sense of where industry advertising is uh, at. So, Duncan, I have to tip my hat to you and your colleagues who were able to uncover um, that, the, that the industry was doing target, this kind of target social media advertising. I did want to say that regarding um, paid advertising bans on tobacco, one thing that we've seen uh, is that more and more newspapers are, are uh, and other, you know, uh, media outlets are, are accepting what we would call corporate what the industry would call corporate social responsibility marketing. So you see them um, greenwashing their reputations by putting out ads that wouldn't, you know, putting out ads that talk about their development investments or their, you know, uh, environmental investments or how sustainable they are um, just to build their corporate reputation. So these outlets have, have banned selling cigarettes, but they haven't taken a firm enough stance against the kind of reputation washing that ironically allows these companies to sell more cigarettes. So um, we've seen, and, and that's become particularly more difficult uh, with the vaping era um, or heated not, heat not burn products that these companies are, are continuing to put advertising, um, advertising out around. Um, I have a personal question for each of you, but before I get to that, Nandita, I did just want to touch base. I mean, 
I'm an American, that's my context. Um, Duncan, I suspect you are too. And I know, Nandita, you've done a lot of work globally, particularly um, in Southeast Asia. And I imagine that what we're talking about here is even more pernicious in countries with less restrictions, with fewer oversight, with less um, civil society action. Um, and I wanted to invite you to talk a little bit about the global picture here, what you see. Yeah, and I think there's one particular context in which it plays out um, that's worth noting, and that is the industry stepping in to play the role of the government, um, providing relief during a crisis, for instance, including during peaks in the COVID crisis through a distribution of resources, um, enabling people to access care. And that is one particular form in which I think we see the tobacco industry uh, promote itself and make itself the savior. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it's it's hard as advocates to um, to build public opinion in those scenarios where the industry is seen to be a, a positive actor. It's really important then, and the work of communication to provide the bigger picture. So again, going back to that example that Duncan used earlier in the case of WPP, there may be a micro impact in the short term, but what's the macro impact in the long term out of this involvement? And is it really uh, without ulterior motives? And that's, I think, been a particular challenge for advocates. Thank you. You know, I want to take a few minutes um, just to dig in a little personally, because I think the area we work in is really difficult. You know, we um, take a lot of knocks. It takes a lot of time, a lot of effort um, to make a difference when you're, you know, David in a David Goliath battle. And I just wanted to ask each of you, um, particularly for those um, in our audience who might be younger, you know, what gets you out of bed in the morning? Why do you keep plugging away at this fight? Um, Duncan? I get so much energy from talking to the creative people who are part of the advertising and PR industry who want to see change. Um, there's such an enormous well of talent and skill and passion there um, that I, I just think it's, um, if we can figure out how to steer it the right way, it's essentially an unstoppable force. You know, um, we are in a moment of hard decisions and I think people, there's a large number of people that are ready to take them and, um, you know, that that's what we need. You know, we, we just have to keep going. Um, so yeah, that's, that's my take. And I think I get hope from um, the solutions. There are solutions. They're not often complicated. Innovation's great, but just scaling up what we already know is, is powerful. And when we do it, the reward of knowing that you're part and a small part of a larger movement that's ultimately pushing towards something positive and good is, is heady. And that's what drives me. I'll just add from my experience, which is similar to both of yours. I mean, the people, the people we get to work with in this field, I find um, incredibly inspiring and um, the strategic minds um, that are helping coming up with the next campaign, the next effort, the next piece of research to kind of unlock this puzzle that we know, um, you know, can save um, thousands or millions of lives um, 
if 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 we commit to it. Um, I want to invite you each to 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 um, have a final thought um, before we close out the hour. Anything to add to this conversation um, or to this moment that that you'd like to leave our audience with? Well, I'll just say I've enjoyed this conversation. I've enjoyed seeing the connections between the different worlds that we operate in, whether, you know, climate and tobacco seemingly are so separate and, you know, you would think no intersections, but in fact, there are so many. And uh, my parting thought is to continue to look across at other movements and and seek to learn one from the other, because I think that's really where um, we have the, that's that's our winning strategy. Yeah, I would share that that gratitude. Thank you, Nandita, this, and Steve both. Um, you know, these are two industries that don't need to exist. We don't need them. Um, we are past that point. And um, I, I just think there's such amazing opportunity um, for transformation. And, um, you know, I, I, the world would be a better place uh, once we get rid of these people. So, or get rid of their business. Sorry, I should say. Um, and uh, yeah, the cleancreatives.org um, is you can find out more about our work. Um, if you're a communication professional, um, we really welcome your feedback, your ideas, your insights, um, your participation. Um, my email's on that website, and I, I truly is an open door um, to reach out at any time. Thanks for that call to action. Yeah, I mean, it's it's amazing as we've had these series of conversations around each week around a different topic. We often come, I, I think we're in a moment, especially with COVID-19, where we've seen the greater need for collective action on health and on the constituent problems like climate. Um, and for advocates and professionals and researchers to look outside of what was formerly siloed work and think um, bigger to think to, to create more collective action and to think bigger about what types of changes do we need to make socially um, to, to create environments that that actually promote health um, that actually promote empowerment that reduce barriers across multiple different issues and to find those synergies, as you said, Nandita. And to each of you in the audience, I hope you do visit cleancreatives.org. Each of us can pledge not to work for these terrible industries. And I hope you come back to the Public Health Power Hour in the future. Um, again, I want to thank each of you, Nandita and Duncan, especially for being on this Public Health Power Hour and see you um, in weeks to come. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Public Health Power Hour. We hold these live conversations several times a month on Twitter Spaces. Follow us at VitalStrat on Twitter to join the conversation in real time. We'd love to see you there. To learn more about how Vital Strategies is reimagining public health, go to www.vitalstrategies.org. I'm Steve Hamill with Vital Strategies. Join us next time on the Public Health Power Hour.